Some of you may not know Brother Carlton Kuhn, but many have probably at least heard his name because he was the NAM director for several years at headquarters over the UPCI and uh, did a fantastic job in that role. And now he is back in Springfield, Missouri, and he is the pastor to my father-in-law, and I'm so thankful for that. Um, he pastored the church that we attended uh, when we were fresh out of Bible college. He pastored that church for a while and now is back in Springfield pastoring another church there. And it is growing and doing so well. And uh, they are very blessed to have him. And we are blessed to have him today. He has several books that he has written. Um, and he brought them with him. So I'm thankful for that. So please take advantage of that um, out in the foyer sometime today. But we want you to come, Brother Kuhn. He came and ministered at our church last year. He talked about his most recent book. And uh, it was a moment. Um, so we were here on Saturday night setting up the table, him and my husband and I. And we set the books on the table. And he picked one up and handed it to me and said, well, you know, I think you're the ladies director of Illinois, so here, maybe you can read this, help get the word out about this book. And so when I got home, I'm like, I better read this book if he's going to talk about it tomorrow. <laughs> so I opened the book, and he begins to list this whole list of things. You could be clinically proven to be depressed if I was like check 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 but it was overwhelming to me to get an answer because all of the things that I had been going through and dealing with and not recognizing me I'm the person that's like bouncing off the walls happy and joyful and and I didn't even want to be around people. And I kept saying to myself, and I kept saying to my husband, what is wrong with me? And I couldn't figure it out. And then he slyly gives me his book. <laughs> I thought, oh, Lord, you didn't want him to just give me the book. You wanted him to give me the book. <laughs> so it was life-changing. And he's going to help us today. And I'm very thankful. Thank you for coming. Thank you for being here. Over 820 years before the birth of Christ, the nation of Judah was in very difficult straits. A king that had only served one year had been assassinated. And uh, his mother, daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, decided to take the vacuum of leadership and step in, and Athaliah declared herself queen. And in so doing, she killed all of the true heirs to the throne, and a very real catastrophe. Or at least she thought she had killed all the heirs to the throne. 
but a woman by the name of Jehoshaphat had found one boy in the midst of the brokenness and ruin of dead little bodies. And she saved that kid. She hid him in the bedchamber. And so did for six years. Then her husband stepped into the role of usurping Athaliah's lead, organized a coup, put the child on the throne. The woman who saved the child was the previous king's daughter. She was married to a priest. She was the preacher's wife. And the scripture mentions her one time in that sentence about saving the boy. Meanwhile, her preacher husband shows up 27 times in the scripture. The credit is so often unfairly given. And uh, you ladies, you need to realize that there is an all-seeing God who is well aware. History may only mention you once, but eternity will mention you several times. There are people who are in our church today who call me their spiritual father, but in, in truth, they're not there because of me. They're there because of Norma. And uh, we had people in our home. We had kids in our home. We had young'uns. And, and, um, and yet, she's probably relatively unknown. But uh, God knows. And it's important that you not diminish the significance. Many of you have no calling. You just married a preacher. You're a much better cook than you are a counselor. But you have been put in a place to make a real difference in people's lives. And you need to know that you are. And you need to appreciate the opportunity to do so. Sister Burke's good to be here. And I listened to a few minutes of Brother Cole Tharp over there. And very, very good stuff. And, and um, I appreciate this church. I've been here before and the great job. Sister Joe Strand spoke at our Missouri Men's Conference. She and her husband several years ago. I was the director of that ministry for our district. And I had to push pretty hard. Missouri is the show me state. And uh, I felt like we needed to have a lady to speak to our men because that's an outside observation. And sometimes our own observation, we don't get it right. And uh, she and her husband did a great job. So we enjoyed sister, the few minutes of sister Enzi's conversation. And my list of things I'm still learning is a lot longer than three. So I don't know if that's a product of being a little older or just, or just what, but uh, that was good. And, and uh, the truth of the matter 
is that if you have stopped learning, you have stopped being useful. Because our world around us is changing. I'm going to talk with you about um, a most uncompelling topic. Someone I cannot cite said it this way. Depression is debilitating, defeating, deepening gloom. Trudging wearily through the grocery store, unable to make a simple choice or to count out correct change. Work undone and not being able to lift a finger. Doubting that God cares, doubting in my prayers, doubting he's even there. Sitting, staring wide-eyed into space, desperately wanting out of the human race. It's hard to describe depression in our world. We have chosen not to describe it. It's hard to describe because every person's experience is a little bit different. But there is one universal trait for every person who is dealing with depression. Nothing comes easy. Nothing. I intended to be here. I was going to leave home at 11 yesterday. I left home at 4.30. Every time I'm going to do one of these sessions on this topic, I have to be renewed, I guess, by the Lord on what the experience is like. So I have been trudging through mud for several days, re-experiencing depression. Jack Dreyfus founded the Dreyfus Mutual Fund and very successful man, very wealthy, but he fought depression. And he recalled the difficulty of explaining it. He said, it's almost impossible to convey to a person who has not had depression what it's like. It's not obvious like a broken arm or a fever. It's beneath the surface. A depressed person suffers a type of anguish when in it, which in its own way can be as painful as anything that can happen to a human being. His brain permits him no rest. His mood is low, has little energy, and can hardly remember what pleasure means. Now, with that set up, we'll probably try to do this a little different today. And of course, we'll always be led by the Spirit. But um, I'm going to open up a topic that you perhaps have never heard talked about in any church setting. I'm going to talk with you about depression, and uh, when I'm done, I'll give you an opportunity to ask questions. You have to accept the reality that I'm very comfortable saying, I don't know. And uh, that is my answer quite often. Also recognize that there are many different ideas about depression, and so as I talk, I reserve the right to be wrong because dealing with depression, dealing with a whole lot of things is shooting at a move at target. 
The second thing I reserve, I reserve the right to change my mind. I can only speak from my life. These are things that I know and have experienced. And um, Father, they're precious people in this room. You have put them in places of significance. They are influencers, many of them, beyond their own comprehension. But as we just heard, having been placed in positions of influence and significance does not in any way negate the reality of life's challenges, whether they be physical, mental, or emotional. And Master, I'm appealing today that you would give me liberty of mind and that you would give me clear speech. Help me to articulate what you have given me to share. And I pray, God, that you can begin a work that only you can do, a work that begins with understanding ourselves and understanding our situation, understand the moment that we're living in, and then beginning to appeal to you and beginning to apply to ourselves the things that can potentially bring healing help to our lives. In Jesus' name, and everybody say amen. amen. If you don't understand depression, let me just give you a start on what it's like. I usually get in the car, put the vehicle in gear, and turn it around without a single thought. It's instinct. For the best people have to think about every single step in the process. It's pulling up to the ATM, sliding your card in, and when the machine asks for your, your PIN number, you can't remember the PIN number the same one you've used for 40 years. It's watching your feet when you walk through a crowd. You can minimize eye contact. The shower becomes your place to cry with nobody the wiser. You lose interest in self-care. Why should I shower? Why should I shave? Why dress up for this day? Even if I did, it wouldn't matter. It is to be desperately alone. Everything is drab, lifeless, and tired. The grayness of winter becomes perpetual. And it never yields to the new life of spring. When reading, by the bottom of the page, I can't recall what I read at the top of the page. In conversation, it is as though I am addled. For the word just can't be captured. And the phrase I need to speak, it's, it's there, but it's out in the other world of uncertainty. And suddenly I don't look like 
or seem to be a person with any measure of intelligence. It just won't come. Being in a conversation with several people is a challenge because the ability to concentrate is not there. It is an anger that is different from all others because it is an anger turned inward. Phone calls are not answered. Messages go unreturned. Shop for groceries late at night because there's less likelihood of running into somebody you know. The dishes pile in the sink until none are clean and it is an essential necessity to wash dishes, to smile even at a grandchild requires conscious thought. Agitation is often near. There's anxiety about what's happening. And it's easy to lash out in anger because of the anxiety that I am in something that will never end. No energy. Depression, as I'm going to talk with you about, is not consistent with the concept of cause and effect. In reality, my life has been full and fulfilling. There are millions, if not billions, of people who would trade places with me. My family has uh, relatively good health. People read my books and they listen to my sermons and Church has grown every time we've been part of one. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand. There have been disappointments and personal failures. But I have no reason whatsoever to ever be depressed. Yet for decades, I have experienced this recurring reality with what 40 years ago was diagnosed as clinical depression. Now it's called a major depressive disorder. So much of what I just said, not all of it, but much of it, describes experience. Now, I'm the sort of guy that needs biblical validation for what's happening. And our scripture, the Bible, that many of us are familiar with, never uses, King James never uses the word depression even one time. But there are symptoms that are described that leave me thinking that particularly great and significant men of the Bible, people of the Bible, battle depression. We're introduced to Job, and of course Job is a good and godly man, and he faced this extreme attack by Satan, and you know his loss, and there is grief that just becomes this fountain. And Job experiences what is known as situational depression. And there is a difference between situational depression and a major depressive disorder. If you've just lost a family member uh, to death, if you've been through circumstances with COVID-19, 
If your church has recently gone through a struggle, if your husband has been tremendously annoying for the last three weeks, you may be dealing with situational depression. And Job would have been there, and there's a distinction meeting. But major depressive disorder is not necessarily attached to loss, but but there are phrases in what Job says that describe what depression is like. And he had situations that were certainly adequate to depress any of us. You're not far into the book of Job, chapter 2. It tells of the arrival of Job's friends and they have come to comfort him. But when they see Job at a distance, they are so shocked at his appearance that they all wept and sat in stunned silence for seven days and seven nights. Job is at a place in life where he is hanging on by his fingernails. He has nothing to call out to them to talk about. He is silent. And that silence is characteristic of depression. Why should I interject myself into the conversation? Because to do so means that someone will perhaps respond and that will require thought to come up with a cohesive response. So we retreat into the quiet. Finally, Job breaks the silence only in Job 3 and 3 to curse the day he was born. And eight verses later, he wishes himself dead. There are some of you who have had the same wish. I have had the same wish. I've never been suicidal, but I have wished that the truck going 80 miles an hour in the other lane would decide to switch lanes. Job's words are the language of depression. In time, Job's friend Bildad, and I'm not sure you can call any of these guys friends, but he accuses Job, and and this crisis of Job's life where it's beyond what Job could ever have imagined. He accuses Job of being presumptuous. In answer, Job expressed his disappointment. And here's the way he says it. It's Job 19 and 10. He, speaking of God, destroys my hope like a fallen tree. One of the characteristics of depression is to have lost hope. Job would speak of his search for God. It's in Job 23, verses 8 and 9. He said, behold, I go forward. He's not there. Look over my shoulder and I can't perceive him. I look to the left hand where I know he has worked, but I can't behold him. 
He hides himself on the right hand that I can't see. And ladies, depression leaves you feeling abandoned and abandoned by God. You're not really abandoned. There's a whole lot of things about depression that are not real. You're not really abandoned by God. But the feeling is there nonetheless. I remember Billy Cole telling the story of there coming a time when he simply could not feel and come into the presence of God. And it went on for months. And Brother Tenney was very much part of Brother Cole's life. And finally he called Brother Tenney and said, I don't know what to do. I can't feel that God is anywhere to be found. I want you to call me every day or every other day and tell me what to do because right now, I don't know what to do and I can't find God. And here's the thought process. God is not available to me so why should I bother going on in such a state? If God has abandoned me, and in his abandonment, because that's part of what children struggle with when their parents abandon them, is a sense of being devalued. If God has abandoned me, then my value is certainly insignificant. And so I will join God and turn my back on myself as well. The Son of God came to this earth, but it's interesting at Calvary that he makes this statement that is also expressive of depression. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because that's the sense. David is spoken of in the book of Acts as the man after God's own heart. But if you carefully read David's Psalms, they repeatedly show someone struggling to sustain emotional balance. Now, I, I'm going to read a couple of portions of some Psalms, and I want you to think about where these are coming from. This is the man who is after God's own heart. And in Psalm 42, 5, and 6, he says, Why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. O my God, my soul is cast down within me. In Psalm 43 and 5, he asked himself the question, Why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why... Are you disquieted within me? You can relate, relate to those feelings if you have been depressed. The anguish and darkness that David, the man after God's own heart, gives voice to sounds so similar to someone who is suffering depression. Now, Imagine a contemporary response from that group that are not willing to admit God's people can have emotional and mental struggles 
and they hear what David is declaring in these psalms and songs and they say, wait a minute, David. By the strength of the Lord, you killed a lion and a bear and you killed Goliath and you escaped Saul and you have written that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want what's happened to you. Have you lost your faith? Have you backslidden? Have you lost your relationship with God? David, I tell you what you need, sir. You need a good praying through. Was David backslidden when he wrote in Psalm 143, and I read only part of it, verses three and four. The enemy has smitten my life down to the ground. He has made me to dwell in darkness. My spirit is overwhelmed within me. Now, there are people, unfortunately, in our movement who would tell you that a real saint of God, a real preacher's wife, a real preacher, a real man of God, any person who has faith would never express the sentiments that are found in the Psalms we just quickly brush through. But if you go back and you read all of David's Psalms and there are ways to read these Psalms of melancholy and you, you will quickly discover that there is a large volume of such Psalms in David's archives. So often David begins with those emotions and the frustration and the anguish and the bitterness and the sense of being alone. But somewhere in the midst of it, there comes that moment when it seems a switch flips and his circumstances have not changed. But he begins to consider his God. And oh, what an answer comes when we consider our God. Sister Enzi talked about Elijah and perhaps he is the greatest picture of depression in the Bible. When you read Elijah's biography, there is incredible success. He declared to Ahab that there would be no dew or rain and the prophecy that he declared to Ahab was fulfilled and there was no dew and no rain and he asked a woman to make him a cake with her last oil and meal. And miraculously, when she did that, God responded and he replenished her supply of both of those. Later, a dead child is raised to life and this is the man whose simple prayer at the time of the evening sacrifice produced fire from heaven. I want you to hear me. Elijah was the real deal. Elijah was a man of God. Elijah had an anointing on his life. There is no angle where that you can look at Elijah and see him as a failure. But if we visit with Elijah just after two notable miracles, it's 1 Kings 19 and 4. But he, Elijah, 
went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came and he sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough now, O Lord. He has just made an incredible impact. God has just used him in significant ways, but now he is saying, take away my life. That's an interesting prayer meeting when the man of God, the woman of God, is praying to die, but I have been in the same prayer meeting where that I knelt beside Elijah and prayed, oh God, let me die. Take away my life. It is enough. So he has fled from circumstances and is alone under a juniper tree and five verses later, Elijah's living in that cave. Those five verses cover a time of 40 days. And 40 days later, Elijah is no better. He feels pathetic. He sees himself as a man alone. There's no other prophets who have been faithful to God. And every person alive has abandoned both God and, and Elijah. 40 days is a long time to be that low. Elijah wasn't battling the sugar blues. Elijah was depressed. Beyond what we know of Elijah's words, the man had isolated himself. There was no one with him. He is praying to die and he is despairing of his own value at being effective. I am insignificant. It's enough. So I want you to hear me. Depression is a real thing. Some here have been in the cave for 15 days. There's others of you that have been there 40 and some have been at times much longer. Alone, though surrounded by people going to church, doing your duties with a gracious smile. To go home exhausted beyond all ability to articulate. Whispering, God, it's enough. Let me die. You look at your life and again, when I look at my life, I've managed to do a thing or two. I've written a book or so and I've seen churches grow and I got to spend time in a little office that they have over there. But in depression, I look at my life as one without accomplishment. Depression is real. Now, I'm talking to you but for some of you dear ones, you are going to deal with ladies in your church family who struggle with depression and some of it is quite severe. It is important that you become a helper 
instead of a hindrance. One of my next books will talk about that being a help part of this thing. But now, let's be honest. In the United Pentecostal Church, this has not been a topic we have talked about. Among other topics. Now, we'll talk about diabetes. You can't see it, but you can have it. We'll talk about heart conditions. You can see those on the screen, perhaps, but you can't see them from without, and, but you can have heart, heart condition. You, you can have gallbladder attacks. That's, that's invisible, but that's painful. I've been there. So why has depression been such a no-no? First thing is this. Depression is linked to psychiatry and psychology, which is a relatively new science. And we all know that there are people in those fields who are atheists and agnostics who make deductions that are inconsistent with the Bible. I will stand firm with the word of God. But we also need to realize that every deduction of all mental health professionals and counselors are not incorrect. Every mental health professional is not opposed to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pastored psychiatrists who were solidly scriptural in their approach to mental health at times when they could not help someone. They'd send them to me or to Norma to work with them from a pastoral perspective. That's first. We need to recognize that every word that comes from those fields is not coming from the Antichrist. The second struggle that we have is that victory in Jesus and depression seem to be inconsistent terms. And the name it and claim it crowd would have all of us imagine that serving God is a magic carpet ride to heaven. It's not. And you ladies, you are in the heat of the battle. And I think sometimes, you know, our saints think that, oh my, they're so close to God. But I've wondered at times if the preacher and the preacher's wife, the pastor and the pastor's wife, may not be the ones who need the most grace from God to be saved. Christians can have victory in Jesus while they deal with both physical illness and emotional or mental illness or mental struggles, emotional struggles. Okay, the third is that because we are focused on the work of the Holy Spirit, and I intend to remain that, But it's real easy to over-spiritualize life. God spoke to me to buy that blue Ford. Well, he didn't tell me not to get a bagel this morning.
There are some who imagine that the presence of depression means a person has sinned. And sin can be the reason. If it is, then when you repent, and I'm not just talking about saying, God, I'm sorry, but when you do that turnaround and you're no longer sinning, doesn't it make sense that the depression would go away? Because there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. But it doesn't always, doesn't most of the time go away. Some of you as mothers or you know of a lady who experienced postpartum depression. Is that lady's depression because of sin? Or might it be that her entire system is awash in hormonal change, the stress and the pressure of a new baby and the anxiety of trying to do it right? And there are none of us, hopefully, who would declare her depression to be based on that woman being a sinner. Here's what happens when we over-spiritualize all of this. It leaves us with four mistaken ideas. First of all, the idea that depression always is the result of sin. Secondly, depression means that I lack faith in God. Third, that because I'm depressed, God has turned his face against me. And fourth, that healing from depression can always be found in spiritual disciplines like prayer and fasting. You're depressed, come on to the altar with me. And yes, we need to keep going to the altar. Is what I'm talking about real? I have district superintendents who call me at times to have a conversation about depression. I have pastors regularly call. A retired superintendent, now deceased, he told me, said, Carlton, my wife would kill me if she knew I told you that she had taken antidepressants. The longtime editor of the Herald and other writings of literature. After I had begun to talk about this and written an article or two about it, he's been deceased a long time. But his wife came in to, to visit with my wife and, and um, she said, my husband dealt with what your husband has written about. It, it was debilitating. It left him where that he was incapable of movement. He got little done. Now, I'm not going to get into what bit I learned about the science of depression. Some of that's in the book, but there's a caveat there, too, that this is always changing, and there's a whole lot of different ideas about all this stuff. But I think the best illustration I can give you of what this is like. Between New Orleans and, and Biloxi, 
Mississippi. There is a lot of water, and uh, I-10, which cuts across there, is four or six lanes all the way. Traffic flows, you wouldn't know you was crossing any river, lake, tidal water, whatever, you just wouldn't. Drive 70 and 80 miles an hour. I hadn't been part of North American Missions long when Katrina came. And the district director for Mississippi wanted me to see what was there, so we decided to travel across Mississippi and Louisiana. When we got to Biloxi, it was a mess. And then when we got on I-10, the washing of those waves from that storm had turned much of the interstate into two lanes, what used to be four. And that is an apt illustration of what life is like. I mean, we didn't travel 80 miles an hour that day. It was 40 and 45 and 30 and sometimes 20. The bridges were out. Something was lacking. Not able to do things as quick as you used to do them. We had some options. There were a few exits. We could have pulled off and waited till things got right. It had been a long wait. But in order to get to where traffic flowed normal, we had to push our way through. And the first thing I want to tell you about encountering depression is this. You have to decide to fight it. If you yield to it, you're done. I wish, I wish, I wish that a Daniel's fast or memorizing the book of Proverbs or being able to quote the book of Acts was the solution, but they aren't. You have to decide, I'm going to fight this. I have acquaintances who dealt with depression and they quit. And depression won. They're up a few hours in the middle of the night and sleep all day. They do nothing significant with their life simply because they abandoned the struggle. Now the battle's real. I don't, I, I don't want to bypass you understanding that. And I don't want you to bypass the fact that I know what you're dealing with, what you're going through to some degree. And again, every person has a different battle. But you listen to me. You can't quit. You can't stop. You can't quit fighting. Because when you quit fighting, and what do you mean fighting? Well, when I'm going through this, there are days when depression wins because I get up and I give it my best shot, but I don't have enough energy to put shoes on. but I'm going to be back fighting the next day again. And I refuse to concede defeat to this thing. And it's not easy to fight. The reason it's not easy to fight is that one of the first problems of depression is that energy is gone. 
physical energy, mental energy, emotional energy. It is gone. Scripture uses this term pretty often in the New Testament, exhort and exhortation. Included in the idea of exhortation is to coach somebody. So I want you to let me coach you a while on some things that you can do to battle the darkness. I'm going to start with some common sense stuff and then I'm going to flow to some Bible-based solutions that I think really matter. First is this. You fight depression when you get outside. I got to thinking about it early yesterday morning and my wife and I actually talked about it. It's been a very busy week. I taught at our church on Wednesday night and I've got this new book that's just out and it's just been crazy. But I, I realized that between Monday and the time that I got in the truck to come here, I had not been outside other than to go to church. There's something about having the wind in your face and the crispness even of the cold air and the birds and the trees and a walk in the park and mowing the grass and sunshine and outside. You see, no matter how grand your office or your bedroom or your living room is, it doesn't compare with what's out there. And everything that you look at in all of those rooms in your house, all of those things are the result of perhaps your decor and somebody's building, but when you get out there, a creator far beyond you has been at work. And I don't know why, but being outside helps. When spring comes, your parents, they used to plant a garden. To make yourself get outside, plant a garden. Become a bird watcher. Brother Bernard's a bird watcher. Anything outside. Second very practical thing. Sweat. Now I know that that word is not something that ladies generally, sometimes when I have preached hard, I will go to my wife and tell her I have got a great big hug for you, just soaking wet with sweat. And she usually rejects me. It's a chapter in my book titled, The Blacksmith Was Seldom Depressed. What's the difference? I work hard, but most of what I do is mind work. My dad worked in the oil field. Before he was in the oil field, he was a logger. My grandparents worked in timber and in the woods and and um, when they came home at night, it wasn't hard to go to sleep. Here's what research has indicated. Research says that at the end of a mind worker's work day, 
that her mind is tired, but the large muscles of the body have gone unused. So there is mental exhaustion, but within those large muscles, something physical needs to be expended. And you expend it with sweat. You expend it by getting your heart rate up. And yes, ladies, it's okay for you to sweat. Do something physical. Help your husband split wood. Winter's coming. Won't take many minutes of that for you to be sweating and have your heart rate up both. Get a treadmill, use it for something other than extra closet space. Sweat. The research has indicated that if you take on a reasonable exercise plan, that the exercise plan will do you as much good as a low-level antidepressant. Sweat. Look at somebody and say, you need to stink sometimes. I can tell that my level of my level of receptivity just went down. Third thing is this. Simplify life. Maybe it was just getting to the essentials, in his case, eating and sleeping, that eventually helped Elijah in his encounter with depression. Some years ago, this has been 20 years or so, I was in the deepest pit I'd ever been in. And those of you whose husband battles this, you go through a hell not of your own making. And my wife goes through it at times. She tries her best to get me out of the house when I'm really struggling. And so we had gone to Branson and and uh, I remember about where we would have pulled into a parking lot there. And I began to weep. And I told her, I don't know what to do. But I can't go on like this. She listened to my frustration of course, she already knew I was depressed, but maybe she didn't know it was that deep. But in our conversation, we begin to strategize a little bit. And that's important because in strategizing, you begin to think about the future. And in depression, it wants to keep you thinking about the now. And one of the things that we decided to do was that I would drop off all non-essentials of my life. I'd been part of the A-team, intended to go to Burkina Faso in Africa once a year, every other year. And I was part of several committees of the United Pentecostal Church, several committees in our town city. And a fellow in our city 
came by and this season he asked me to be part of a governing body, the board of an organization aiding the poor. And I told him, I said, now I, I'm all for aiding the poor. But right now I'm quitting stuff. I'm not taking on anything new right now. Now there's some things you can't drop off of your schedule. But it's like Sister Enzi said, and it's interesting, there's research on what saints expect of their pastors also. And one dear one somewhere had calculated, he had listed all these things and how many hours that, that the pastor should spend on it. And he had come up with this 284 hours a week. Well, there's only 168 hours in a week. This guy expected the pastor to have extra long days. There are expectations that people will impose on you that God has not imposed on you. And some things you just need to turn loose of. If you're running three departments in the church, there's three departments that are not doing very good because you can't split yourself into that many pieces. Find out which one helps get new people here and keep new people here and let the other two go. You say, well, the church can't survive without a golden year's ministry. Yeah, it can. It did before you started the thing. Let some stuff go. Simplify life. And if you like to be busy, which I do, guess what? Stuff will be attracted to you like you are Velcro. It just You won't stay simplified very long. But in your simplifying, reduce the flood of information. You get too much email. You spend too much time on Facebook. I know the pictures of those cats fighting is interesting. But I doubt it's helping you or anybody else much. In simplifying, do what the Lord told Israel to do. Establish a Sabbath of some kind in your life. Now, I've been a bivocational pastor, did it for a long time, and I've done it since I left uh, North American Missions for several years. And a bivocational pastor has a different gig than the guy who is full-time. And you have to strategize a whole lot different. And it may well be that your Sabbaths have to come in chunks like five days at a time. But you can't keep the rubber band stretched all the time. Eventually, the pressure will bring a break. Got to have Sabbath. And I'm gonna tell you now, if we were still living under the law and the Lord were going to judge us for keeping that particular commandment about 
keeping the Sabbath, none of us going to be saved. Because we hadn't figured that out. We just work. Simplify your life. Depression creates in our lives what I call a green screen. You may not know this, but many of the pictures that you see online and in magazines, the fellow who's riding a horse is actually in New York City, downtown Manhattan. Not a horse within 70 miles, maybe, other than the ones that pull those carriages around Central Park. But he stands in front of a screen that is a green background and then those who know how to do such things can transport that picture where that suddenly he's leading the horse. Hear me. Depression gives you an unreal picture of your life. And so what you need to do you need to look behind the green screen of the current. You see, one of the things that depression does is it causes us to live in this moment. There is no past, there is no future, it is now. Whenever my wife knows that I'm hitting the edge, she will begin to feed them to me. Pictures of our grandkids. Those two little boys, pictures in our living room. They're both about two years old and they're standing out in our drive whispering to each other. There's three months between them. What can two-year or two-and-a-half-year-old little boys be whispering about. One of the great mysteries of life. Well, you can't look at those pictures and videos and the memories of pleasant and good things without there coming some measure of lift. Take advantage of the things that will lift you. The other thing that is a lift, at least for me, is that I pull out my calendar and I begin to look at what I am scheduled to do. And while today I feel no value in myself, there's a pastor down in southern Illinois who has asked me to come and teach his leaders and be with them the following Sunday. a pastor in Kentucky who next week I'll be preaching a growth conference and while I still may not feel a great deal of value about myself the calendar says somebody needs me and that's part of being valued while you're depressed and I'm hastening on no unnecessary decisions Guys in the cheap seats, it's not the time to buy a boat. Ladies, it's not time to go to Dillard's and spend $1,500. 
No unnecessary decisions. I think there was some pushback about that shopping thing. I'm so glad my wife does not love shopping. I have to almost make her buy stuff. Fifth thing is mental vitamins. I'll ignore that. And what I call mental vitamins is this. You need to educate yourself about depression. Because educating yourself about it, reading books about it, and some of it's wacky and some of it's a waste of reading, and I've read plenty of those. I think my book has, I don't know, 40, 50, 60 citations in it, but I read plenty of stuff that just was kind of a waste of time. But reading about it better prepares you to deal with what may well be coming. And I know by now that it's coming again at some point. And so if you've had repeated occurrences of major depressive disorder, learn about it. Do anything positive. We have several families. Unfortunately, some of them have died, one to covid Tim and Mary Dugas, who pastored just across the river. They were what we call, and we still have some, some are here, that we call laughing friends. Now, I'm pretty sober, unfortunately. But you need some people in your life who you can just talk about memories, remember things, And I'm fixing to be crucified for this one. Not literally. But you can walk through the mall and sit down on a bench a little bit and laugh at people. <laughs> Y'all all do it. Where does she get clothes that big? How long has it been since he got new overalls to wear them all? Laughing friends. If you have time and opportunity, travel. Mental vitamins. Now I want to pick up the spiritual side of this. When I'm depressed, I don't have the words with which to pray. So in depression, I had to learn how to pray when I didn't know how to pray. You see, when you're down, a prayer life driven by emotion disappears. But the scripture teaches that prayer is not to be dependent on how we feel. A depressed person is not to stop praying because if you let your emotions drive your life, you will accomplish little. In his Sermon on the Mount, in one paragraph, Jesus says three times he makes this statement, when you pray. He didn't say if you pray, but when you pray. It seems to be his assumption that prayer be part of our life. It's not optional. But in my seasons of depression, the normal mode of prayer was beyond me. There's no words. Let me, let me share two approaches that have served me well. I encourage you to try them. And if you benefit from any of this, 
let me know later or if it helps you get through a battle later. You see me elsewhere, remind me of this time together and, and tell me how it helped you. The first thing that has helped me immensely is prayer journaling. And in some of the most absolute darkest seasons of depression, this valued practice that I still use almost all the time in prayer. And my prayer journaling has five different parts to it. The first is I spend a few minutes and I write a paragraph remembering what happened yesterday. And the reason that's important is because it forces you to slow down. You're looking back over your shoulder and you're remembering. It is a retrospective. Then, adoration. And with adoration, I write a paragraph, and I found some books. Charles Rolls is a long-deceased author, and he wrote a number of books, five of them, about the attributes of Christ. And I've used those repeatedly to guide me, to celebrate an attribute of Christ that I would otherwise have overlooked. And so I write a paragraph that focuses on exalting a single quality of the Lord Jesus Christ. Third paragraph is confession. Now, we think of confession as confessing sin, but there's more to confession than that. I confess my need of him. I confess that there are dilemmas in my life and I name them. I confess real issues. Fourth is thanksgiving. And this is a paragraph expressing appreciation for things that the Lord has done in my life and in my family. And the last component of it is writing out a paragraph of supplication. And most of the time, I can do this in, in a couple of pages of my prayer journal. I intended to bring it up here to show you what, but I began just using wire notebooks or whatever. Um, and I still have all those and look at them every once in a while and um, get some preaching thoughts occasionally. So, But every day, write down the date, draft a bit of a diary of yesterday's events, and then I begin to engage my mind in adoring him. And I've discovered something about the work of God, and I hope I'm not going over time. I forgot to look at, I'm glad there's a clock up there because mine died earlier. I learned this about leading a church through times of difficulty. And I learned it about my own experience with God. You cannot adore Christ and at the same time be overwhelmed by the insignificant. And so I have told young pastors repeatedly, you're going through a tough time at your church, every service exalt Christ. Every service you preach the exaltation of Christ. Every Nobody can argue with that. Just talk about how wonderful Jesus is. And when you begin to think about how great he is and you begin to adore him, it begins to lift you. And then there are prayers further for when you cannot pray that have been of great benefit to me. Eugene Peterson, who wrote a number of books for preachers and put together the thing called The Message, he made this statement. He said, the Psalms were never written to be read silently. They were written to be sang or read aloud so when I can't pray 
with Carlton's words. I take the psalmist words. And I begin wherever I last stopped and I open the Bible to that psalm and I begin to read it aloud. Now the aloud part is important because it forces you to slow down and there is more of a feeling associated with it. It's not just up here, but there's action. The first psalm doesn't always resonate with me, but eventually I read a psalm, maybe three, maybe five, maybe seven, that it resonates with me. It speaks to me in that moment, and I claim it as my prayer, and I may read that psalm aloud several times. There have been times, as I said and prayed, that the tears, because I suddenly realized that somebody else many, many centuries ago had been right where I was. Sat down with an elder when I was a young evangelist. Of course, then we didn't use the word depression. We could be melancholy. You know something, we all listen to ourselves. And when we listen to ourselves, a whole lot of what we hear is negative. You're losing your hair. How could you have been so stupid as to have done that? That tie does not match that jacket. You're talking to yourself, looking in the mirror. Ross Landorf, in one of her books, she wrote about basement voices. And basement voices are the voices from the past and the present that whisper words of discouragement. And as you begin to climb your way out, there is this voice from yesterday that has the tentacles of an octopus that pulls you back into the basement of your depression. The subconscious says, entering into the conscious, if you were more godly, if you hadn't, if you were a true saint, if, 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 and and all of the words that you hear, there is guilt and there is despair and the basement voices never give you a single word of suggestion as to how to improve yourself. It's hard to eliminate the basement voices of our life They build a case against our intelligence, our wisdom, our integrity, and our faith, and and they're there, and and the things that they whisper so often is, is correct. It's right. But the basement voices never see life through the filter of grace. I'm so glad for that amazing grace. And so our self-talk becomes this unending stream of negativity and you can't stop. If I were to say to you right now, ladies, it is important that you not think about chocolate ice cream. Don't think about chocolate ice cream. What just happened? You all went to Baskin Robbins mentally. Because you can't empty your mind of all the negativity. But what you can do is you can add an additional voice. 
decades ago, my wife and I were evangelists, and during the summer, we would usually work at our home district in Louisiana, and I got acquainted with the late T.W. Barnes, and Brother Barnes is a man uniquely used of God. A lot of his uh, messages, he was a very simple preacher, but he was, he was incredibly, incredibly used of God. It's worth listening to them on YouTube. I don't know that there's any videos there. but And Brother Barnes served as the camp principal, so I'm there working, Norma's there working. And, and Brother Barnes was always accessible to young preachers. So one day, we were in the meeting room of the old tabernacle, just me and him. And I shared with him my predisposition toward melancholy. Couldn't be an evangelist and be depressed. I was so shocked that day when Tom Barnes, a man of legendary faith, told me that he had the same challenge. But he didn't just admit to having the same challenge. He coached me that day. He said, Brother Coon, it's always amazed me that you got these icons who would call we kids brother. But he coached me that day and he said, in those times when I'm not in the right frame of mind, I give myself a good talking to. As I'm looking in the mirror while I'm shaving, I tell myself, Tom, you're not gonna think that way. That is wrong thinking. You are gonna get dressed and you are going to get the things done that you need to do today. Brother Barnes had a wry grin and with that grin he said, you'll think it's funny but I stand there in the bathroom and I give myself a verbal talking to where there is a second voice. You see the basement voices the Barnes had struggled with some things with emotion. His family had earlier in life and those basement voices always reaching to pull the man of faith and the apostle and the prophet, powerful man of God, pull him down. But you need to hear me. Those silent voices are not as powerful as the words that you speak aloud. And your tongue not your mental process of ideas, but your tongue has the power of life and death. Your mental words don't have the power of life and death, but you need to say it. I'm not suggesting blab it and grab it, but I'm saying when you begin to wake up and you're struggling, talk about your plans and intent. Remind yourself of what you heard preached on Sunday and that word of faith your husband declared and recall the times that you've been through what you're going through and you've come out of it. And for decades, I have used Brother Barnes' advice. What happens when a defendant does not show up in a civil trial? The adversary is granted their petition. When the only voices being heard in the court that defines you and your ability is the negative voice and you are not there to fight. You need to show up for the trial every morning. You need to speak the evidence of grace and the goodness of God. 
And you need to remind yourself who you are in Christ. And you turn that depressing monologue. Now you might want to warn your husband and kids and grandkids what's about to happen. Whether they don't think there are other issues. But you turn that depressing monologue into a dialogue. You have an advocate who can speak of Calvary. We are invited to boldly approach the throne of grace not because of our merit and our capability and our goodness and what we've accomplished and how nice we look or anything else. We are invited to approach it on the basis of the blood of Christ. God help us. So let me recap. Depression's real. It attacks the entire person, mentally, spiritually, physically, emotionally. It's not just part of your life. And major depressive disorders coming out of it is not always simple. It's not always quick. It's not always easy. You have to decide to fight. You have to decide to fight. You fight by deciding to get up and actually make your kids some toast and oatmeal instead of saying, I'll just get a bowl of cereal. You don't want to fight. You wear that ratty old house coat that should have been taken to the dump. That, by the way, your husband does not like. That's not my lesson for today, but I wanted to be of help. Maybe this part wasn't of help, but that part... Fix your hair. When I'm battling depression and I have the energy to do so, I put on, and I know it's a fight, I put on my best suit. Most expensive shirt, nicest tie. People will say, what are you dressed up for today? Because I usually just wear a jacket or maybe a sweater. And I don't tell them why, but I've decided that when I look in the mirror all day long, I'm gonna be looking the best I can look. I'm going to fight. Now, I've covered a lot of stuff and have taken a while. And the Holy Spirit wants to minister because there's some of you who have never heard and you've never had validated just as Sister Burke mentioned earlier. You have truly thought that God had abandoned you or that you were backslidden or that some misdeed of your 20s or 30s had caused God to retract his blessing and favor from you. And so the Holy Ghost will need to minister. Before we do that, let me just take a minute. Any, any questions or comments or woe is me and whoever's helping with music, y'all get ready um, to give us a little background here in a minute. And again, I'm totally comfortable saying I don't know. Yes, ma'am. It's a great question. Her husband battles depression and, and his challenge is that he won't fight. So how does she help him fight? Well, first thing obviously is pray. And then the second thing is to invite into your lives as many things that he enjoys as possible. So you can't 
you can't make him fight, but you can, you know, if, if there's a particular place he likes to visit, plan the trip. He won't plan it. He don't have the energy to plan it. If having kids, grandkids, neighbors, anybody around gives a lift, we'll do that. But, you know, the point, and this fits for all of us, you're going to have to take the lead because he won't have the energy to do it. Does that help? Anybody else? I was rereading my book last night. It's a good book. <laughs> it should actually be on the Times and USA Today's bestseller. It's not there yet, but we're closer than where we started. should be. Now, I can't believe. Some of you got questions you want to ask. You just won't do it because we're in this bunch of... And, you, and we still have this problem that we are not... You would come and confess if you had, a, if you had an ankle that was turned. You would come and confess if the doctor had diagnosed you with diabetes. But it remains a shortcoming. And so we're not willing. Yes, ma'am. I don't think it's, well, I don't want to make that a blanket statement. I I think, first of all, it's emotional and mental. And the science, I have a friend, pastors in Bethel, Alaska, he is a psychologist, has led the Alaska, whatever, of psychiatrists and mental health professionals for years, a number, well, he's led it several years. And he, made, he told me something interesting. He said, you know, we can take somebody who is healthy and we can depress them by putting certain chemicals in their body. And he said, does it not then make sense that we could take somebody who is depressed and lift them to balance by adding chemicals to their body? Because the science is that there are neurotransmitters that are not working right and there's not enough of certain chemicals there. So, and again, that's, that's a broad term. And so anyway... For me, it's almost never spiritual. It is mental and emotional. But both of those play into the spirit, obviously. But what I don't let happen, and this, this, this is why depression has always been such a paradox to me, because we passed your Truth Tabernacle in Springfield. We went to about 80 people, and in the years we were there, it grew to 300 plus, and we built buildings and I guess the last year we were there, we baptized 104 in just regular Sunday, Wednesday services. And we'd have great church on Sunday, baptized three, several received the Holy Ghost, and on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, I am under the carpet. I have nothing to be depressed about. It's there. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. Negative dreams, they come from God. Or, and I'm not sure I have the answer to that. Um, it would be very facetious for me to say some of what 
I think about my own dreams, so I won't say that because it has to do with pizza and stuff like that. But, but you know, my wife struggles often with negative dreams. How'd you sleep? Well, it was horrible. I just had nightmares all night. So, but I can't. That's something I don't have the answer for. Yes, ma'am. Need that on video, really, as well. that helps all of us. You know, um, I read the, that, I think it's in Tim LaHaye's book on depression, um, that when we preach on Sundays, when we guys preach on Sundays, that 20% of our congregation is currently dealing with depression. We need to be sensitive to that. And it's like our sister said, a lot of times we can dress ourselves up and we look good and we look normal and we everything's good and we got the smile taped on that as soon as we get in the car headed home we take the mask off and we're so tired yes I think it's probably a fine line, but for me, oppression, just by virtue of its definition, pushes down, pushes down. And you know, Satan definitely wants to oppress the saints, and he wants to oppress you ladies. And any time that any of us are oppressed, and I'm very much aware of spiritual warfare, and we got all kind of devils in Springfield that we hadn't even named them yet, 
So I understand that part of it. And there's no minimizing it in anything that I'm ever going to say. But oppression, this pushing down, this constant load, is similar to depression in that it brings a weariness. It's tiring and just wears you out. Well, and I don't know that you can always denote there there are um, uh, tests about depression that are easily available online. And it's like Sister Burke said, you just get to check in the stuff and you think, my Lord, you know, where do I go? I passed a mental health hospital on the way to church today. Is this, is this where I need to go in and get help? Um, but um, I like my do sometime. I taught myself where my idea was. But um, oh, I remember. The book of Daniel talks about the strategy of the Antichrist. And you need to be aware of this. His strategy is to wear out the saints. And you're some of God's saints. And it's interesting the word that is used there for wearing out describes mental exhaustion. Not physical, mental exhaustion. It wants to wear out the saints. You know what happens when we're fatigued? We lose our sensitivity. We lose our awareness of God. We lose our awareness of others. And we just want to survive. Well, the first step is to learn to, I mean, to, to say, I'm going to fight this. And, and I probably should have done as I do at some church growth things at times and said, you know, ladies, if you're not willing to fight this, then I don't have anything really to offer because you have to be willing to get on the treadmill. Depression is also caused at times physically by eating too much sugar. And I love all of that. Well, the first thing is I think, I, I don't know. I, I, no, I know what I'm going to say, but I'm not sure we need, I'm not sure that you ladies need to always feel that you're responsible for the spiritual climate of the church. Um, sometimes you're as spiritual as a doorknob. Just be honest. You have brought to him the sacrifice of praise. You didn't have any enthusiasm of praise. You brought a sacrifice of praise. What we should do, what you should do is, number one, all of you continue to be saints of God in prayer and in praise and in church attendance. I have a fellow who pastors in Canada, one of the largest churches. His wife has quit the fight. About three times, a church, three times a year she shows up for church, sits in the furthest corner of the balcony because she fights depression and she quit. Don't quit. That's the first thing. I'm not going to quit. I've never let depression keep me home from church one time. 
I've never let it keep me out of the pulpit one time. Now, it might have been the only three hours that I felt like surviving of the entire week and sometimes months. But I, 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 I'm not going to let that go. I don't know if that helps, but you, you got to fight and then you've got to continue to practice your prayer disciplines and the, and the right things that God has called us to do. And let me give you a little piece of information. Depression, for anybody who fights it, always has an exit sign. People that fight it don't get in it and stay forever. My analogy of depression, I never was much of a hunter, but when I was a kid, we'd hunt ducks in Louisiana. And the way I had to do it was wade off out in the backwaters of the Mississippi River and find some trees and kind of settle in there. Well, to get out far enough that the ducks were going to land, you might have to walk 200 yards from the bank. And so here you go. You're striding out there. Well, the hours to shoot ducks ends with sunset. And so dark comes. I'm 200 yards from the bank. This is out in southern wilderness. Not a light in view. And you begin trudging back to an invisible bank. Walking through mud. It's a tough slog going back. In depression. You're walking in that kind of environment and you can't see anything ahead of you except the same thing you're going through right now. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. There's no sense of things are going to be better. But you need to hear me. If you keep fighting, there's an exit sign. It's an exit sign. You may not see it today. You may have been in this dilemma for 90 days, 180, two years. But if you keep fighting, now I want to add one other thing here. If you've been going through depression a long time, seek counsel. Seek counsel. Nothing wrong with going to a counselor. I always send my folks to Christian counselors. They may not be apostolic. Why a counselor? Well, my experience as a pastor is people will not tell me the truth about what's going on in their lives. And so they have this counselor who's not going to be preaching to them and staring at them next Sunday. And they're willing to talk to him or her about what's going on. And I have worked with counselors. I've been to counselors. I've had counselors send patients to us. Get help. Get help. Don't let this put you under. You have too much to offer the kingdom of God. Let's stand together. I sense that there is something with a tad of depth perhaps that the Holy Ghost would like to do. Pharisees will ask the question, who did sin? 
this preacher's wife or maybe it was the preacher's wife's kids. But the master comes along. He's not concerned about that particular question. He's concerned about making the blind to see. Could we just lift our hands and and in a posture of surrender, could we let God help us for just a moment here?